You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Let me make it while the choir is getting out of the way here. Uh, let me recognize a couple more people. I see some important folks. Our secretaries, who are not members of this fellowship or members of other Baptist churches in the in the city, are here this morning uh, with their husbands. I see uh, Ernest and Sheila Yancey back here, and uh, Charla and Ronnie Pipes over here. And I mentioned to them this week and said we sure wish you guys could come and visit with us. And they've set aside you know, Sheila accompanies a Thrasy organ in her own church, and uh, so is gotten somebody else that gets to fill in or are they just not using the organ this morning okay and uh charlotte and ronnie are active in their sunday school class at another baptist church so we appreciate you being here and uh, they're a blessing to us as well take your bibles this morning turn to john the 14th chapter john chapter 14 verse 1 are y'all gonna have a hard time hearing kick it up mike jimmy you're just deaf that's what they say is the first thing to go is the hearing can all of you hear is this comfortable for your ears John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. It's a passage I've been telling you, threatening to preach on for several weeks now, and I'm going to make good on my threat. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. They tell us, those who know, that the number one killer in our nation is not automobile accidents, it's not a three-year-old children living in the home with you 24 hours a day, or any of those kinds of things, no other disease but one, which is coronary trouble. We most often refer to it as heart condition or heart trouble. Is that right, Donald, our resident doctor in the place? I thought I was correct. More people die of heart trouble than any other physical kind of heart trouble. But I want to speak to you this morning about another kind of heart trouble. It's not the physical kind. It's the spiritual kind, the emotional kind, the fearful kind. It's a troubled heart. Not heart trouble, but a troubled heart. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. In other words, don't let your hearts be anxious. Don't let your hearts be fearful. You see, the medical community has something to say to you. If you have physical heart trouble, the Lord Jesus may have something to say to you if you have physical heart trouble. But I know he has something to say to you if you have spiritual heart trouble, if your heart is troubled. Jesus' words are found in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. For those of you that suffer from a troubled and anxious heart. You see, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Those 11, by this time there are 11 of them, because one of them has fallen by the wayside. 
He is speaking there on the night before his crucifixion with those 11 disciples, and they are troubled. Their hearts are anxious. They are very much troubled. And Jesus says to them, these soothing, calming, timeless words, don't let your hearts be troubled. If you will, imagine with me for a moment yourself in the upper room with those disciples. You might immediately say, but oh, I don't deserve to be there. Even if I had been alive in that day and time, I would have not been a one, one of those that was chosen to be with Jesus. And the reason that perhaps you might say that is because you perhaps have developed an idea that these disciples were some kind of super saints, that they were super Christians, if you will. But in fact, the words of the gospel tell us that exactly is the opposite truth. Because these disciples, just like you and I, who are disciples of the Lord Jesus, these disciples were filled with all kinds of contradictions. They could at one moment be professing like a saint and the next moment being living like Satan himself. They could one moment be confessing that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the next moment cursing Jesus' name, denying that they ever even knew him. They could at one moment be saying, Jesus, we'll go out and we'll literally win the world. And the next moment they couldn't even stay awake with him for a few moments in the garden to pray. You see, these are real people, just like you and I, perhaps even more real than you and I sometimes, who were gathered with Jesus on that last night in the upper room before his crucifixion, and Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, the very fact that Jesus said that says that he knew that their hearts were troubled. He knew that their hearts were anxious, that they were fearful, in that moment, what was it that made the disciples anxious? What was it that made them fearful? Well, some of the things that Jesus had been talking about, quite frankly. If you look back in the 13th chapter, verse 33, Jesus has given them an unsettling announcement. Jesus said, little children, I'm with you just a little while longer, and then you'll seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. That troubled their hearts. Because, you see, these disciples had been with Jesus for three years. They had hung all of their hopes and all of their dreams on Jesus. And now Jesus announces to them this last night, I'm just going to be with you for a little while, and then I'm going. And where I am going, you cannot come. That made them anxious. That troubled their hearts. They felt that the Lord Jesus was going to desert them. They were fearful. Verse 38 Jesus makes another announcement to Peter. And by making it to Peter, he, in a, in a sense, was making it to all of the disciples because he was cutting right through the facade that was on the outside and showing the fear and the denial that was inside their very hearts. Where Peter said, Lord, why can't I go with you? And then Peter said, Lord, I'll lay my life down for you. I'll die for you. And then Jesus responded to Peter's declaration that he would be willing to die for Jesus Jesus said, no, before the sun rises tomorrow, you will have denied me already three times. Three times before the sun rises tomorrow, you will have denied me. And so Peter was faced with his own humanity. Peter was faced with his own disobedience that was about to come. Peter was faced with all of that stuff, cutting through all of the outward pride and all of those kinds of things. Jesus just got right to the heart of the matter, if you will. And Peter became anxious because he was faced with his own humanity and his own disobedience. But you put all of that behind it all, 
behind the scenes on this whole deal, if you've walked with us through the Gospel of John, you'll understand this. That behind it all was the failure of their dreams. These disciples had hooked their dreams to Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, and they weren't about to accept that he was a suffering Messiah, as the Scripture had said he would be, and as he had testified that he was going to die. They didn't want that. They wouldn't accept that. They were still hope against hope that maybe Jesus was going to unveil himself. He was going to draw his sword and ride in Jerusalem on his white stallion and chop the heads off the Romans and set the Jews up as leaders of Israel. And then, of course, the disciples would be his right and left-hand men. You see, that's what they had hoped for. They kept saying, Jesus, when are you going to bring in your kingdom? Jesus, when are you going to set up your kingdom? And so all of these things that Jesus is saying the night before his crucifixion, it troubles their heart. It makes their hearts anxious because they see in the crucifixion that is coming that he's telling them about, they see all of their visions being unfulfilled. They see all of their dreams just going up in smoke. And so their hearts are anxious. Their hearts are troubled. So you see, the very same things that trouble you are the things that were troubling these disciples. There's the pain of separation. There's the pain of feeling deserted by those around you, those that are perhaps even your close friends, some of you that are your family members. There's the pain and the agony of death that some of you in this body of believers have faith in the not-too-distant past. That causes the heart to be troubled. That causes the heart to be anxious. And then there's just the, the pain of your own disobedience. I mean, quite frankly, when we're just disobedient to the Lord, it just causes our hearts to be anxious, does it not? And all of the things that were troubling the disciples, all of the things that were making them anxious are the things that you and I face. And so Jesus gave some truth, some timeless truths, I've called them, some timeless truths for troubled hearts. He gave them to those disciples that day, but he also gives them to you and me because, you see, they're timeless truths. They weren't just for that night. They weren't just for that time. But they are timeless truths for all of God's people for all of eternity. And they give stability. Some of you are troubled. I know you are. I know your lives. I hear you speak. I see your face. I've been troubled. You know that. Because I'm human and I don't try to hide that. Alan has been troubled. We all know that. He's just a troubled guy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So Jesus has some tremendous words for those of us that are troubled, and that's everybody here. So let's hear the words of Jesus. Timeless truths for troubled hearts. First of all, there's the truth about his person. The truth about his person. Don't divorce this from its context, though. Remember the night when Jesus said this and what these disciples were going through, and it'll take on new life. It'll have new meaning for your troubles. Jesus said, first of all, there's a truth that will help your hearts to not be anxious, to not be troubled, and it is a truth about who I am. It's the truth of his person. What did he say first thing? He said, believe in God, but believe also in me. Now, for you Greek scholars out there, and, and there may be a couple of you, at least there's some, some hopefuls out there at least, you perhaps even know that this verse can be translated several different ways, and it all hinges upon some technicality of the Greek grammar, that the indicative mode and the imperative mode in the Greek language are exactly the same in form. And so the only way, there, Ronnie, I see Ronnie grinning over there, the only way that you can know the difference is by its context. 
And an, an indicative statement is a statement in positive that is, has a positive relationship to reality. An imperative is a command. It's an order. And the indicative and the imperative are the same. And so as translators come to this, they're really kind of cast upon the context to decide how, what Jesus is really saying. Is Jesus making a statement of fact or is he giving a command? Is he saying, believe in God, or is he making an indicative statement that says, you already do believe in God, therefore believe in me? I think that the King James really has it right there, and, and that's not always true, but I think the King James has it correctly because the King James says that Jesus is making a statement of fact first and then a command second. Jesus is saying this, you believe in God. And then he gives a command, believe also in me. So you see, the Lord Jesus knew that they already believed in God. He, he knew they already believed in the Father. And Jesus is saying, listen, you believe in God. You believe in the Father, so believe in me. And if you do, then your hearts will not be troubled. The things that are making you anxious will no longer make you anxious. Because Jesus is saying, listen, as the Father loves you, I love you. You believe in God, believe in me. As the Father cannot lie and would not deceive you, I cannot lie and I will not deceive you. As you are secure in the Father's love, then you are secure in my love. You believe in God, then believe in me also. I know what I'm saying, and I would not lie to you. How can Jesus make a statement like that? That's an audacious statement. That's a bodacious statement. How can Jesus make a statement like that? It's because of the truth that John has attempted to communicate from the very first verse of his gospel that God and Christ are one. That if you have seen the Father, you have seen the Son. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. He began his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. In other words, this Word that became flesh was none other than the eternal God himself. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is in an encounter with the Pharisees as he often found himself. And they're talking about their father Abraham. Oh, they love to talk about Abraham as their father. And Jesus just blows them away with this statement, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And the next verse says they took up stones to stone Jesus because in their mind he had committed blasphemy. Because Jesus took the Old Testament Hebrew name of God given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the state of being verb, when, God, when Moses said, God, who do I tell Pharaoh sent me when I go? And God said, tell them I am has sent you. I am who I am. And that became the Old Testament name of God, so revered by the Jews that they wouldn't even speak it. As they read it in the Old Testament scripture, they would substitute Adonai, Lord, for Yahweh, Jehovah. And so Jesus in John 8, 58, looks at these Pharisees and said, listen, you like to talk about Abraham. Let me tell you about longevity and eternity. Before he was, I am. And he took the name of God upon himself. John chapter 14, verse 9, in this very chapter, Jesus is going to make an incredible statement. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Lord, show us the Father to be enough. Jesus said, have I been with you so long you don't understand? He who has seen me has seen the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father am one, you see, the truth that Jesus is trying to communicate to the disciples in John 14, 1 is the same one he's been telling them all along. I am God the Father. You believe in God, believe in me, for he and I are one. You're troubled, Jesus is saying, because you do not believe. 
Did they believe? They certainly did not, did they? Even until after the resurrection was when they really came to a position of trust and faith. And Jesus is saying, you have heart trouble. Your heart is troubled because you are in the condition of unbelief. Here's the timeless truth. Trusting Jesus. What well, sounds almost trite, does it not? Because it's just a basic fundamental truth. And the basic fundamental truths get abused so much that we forget the reality of the truth. Jesus says, believe in God. You believe also in me. And if you wouldn't do that, your heart would not be anxious. If you would just take me at my word and believe the things that I've said, then your hearts would not be anxious. I know in my own life, and I suspect it's true in yours, that when I really become anxious, it's because I've fallen into unbelief. When I'm walking in belief and really and truly taking the Word of God at its face value, just as the Lord Jesus delivered it, it's because I'm not trusting, because I'm not remembering His promises, because I'm not really believing that Jesus is who He said He was and will do what He said He will do. But you see, the answer to fear is always faith. Do you hear that? The answer to fear is always faith. The only hope for joy is in Jesus. The only source of peace is the Prince of Peace, one with the Father. So a personal faith in a personal Lord brings personal relief to troubled hearts. A personal faith in a personal Lord brings personal relief to troubled hearts. Is your heart troubled? The first truth for you is, remember who he is. It's the truth of his person. Jesus was not just some itinerant teacher. Jesus was not just some vagabond rabbi. The Lord Jesus was none other than John proclaims him to be God living in the flesh. Do I hear amen to that? That was weak. That one wasn't. That was a good one, Jacob. Thank you. The second timeless truth for troubled hearts is not only the truth about his person, but the truth about his preparation. Verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now, you see, Jesus had said, I'm going away, and that troubled the disciples. So Jesus encourages them to believe in God. To believe in him but then he says i'm going away for a specific purpose now get this and the purpose jesus says for which i am leaving is to prepare in other words jesus is saying i'm not just going away but i'm going away to do something i'm going away to make some preparations now remember these were troubled hearts weren't they these were troubled hearts that jesus was talking to so what comfort is it going to be to them to know that, okay, Jesus, you're going to leave us. And, okay, Jesus, you're going to be doing some preparation while you're gone. But what, what comfort is that going to bring to them? What comfort is that going to bring to troubled hearts that are fearful of being deserted, that are fearful of deserting him, that are fearful of disobeying him? What comfort is that going to be? It's because of what he says in the rest of the verse about this preparation. He says, I'm going to prepare a place. A place. He's not just up there preparing 
He's preparing a place, a specific place. A specific place. What place is he talking about? Come on. Hmm? Heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's just using different terminology to talk about eternal life, to talk about heaven. Now, when you mention heaven and hell, immediately folks scoff. Some do. Because heaven is a concept that is so far beyond the human intellect. It's so far beyond the human imagination that folks just want to scoff immediately. You ever had one of those people knock at your door who believe and will tell you that when you die, you're dead? That's all there is to it? Their satchel full of, of uh, books and magazines? My mom does that, by the way, every Saturday. Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that when you die, you're dead, unless you happen to be one of them, and then you still remain in the grave until someday, you know, the resurrection, and then only the Jehovah's Witnesses, only if you're a part of their group, are resurrected. Dr. Wayne Ward, a former professor at Southern Seminary, uh, tells a funny story. And you probably have got some funny stories about some of these folks have knocked on your door before, but Dr. Ward said one Saturday morning he was... Uh, you know, lounging around in his robe and his slippers and, and someone knocked at the door and he got up and he went to the door and, and there was a woman at the door with a sidekick there on the side that wasn't saying anything, but the woman was doing the, the major talking and, and she immediately assaulted him with these words. Does your preacher tell you that there's a heaven and a hell? And Dr. Ward said, I responded immediately, well, I am a preacher <laughs> and I've even been known to preach on heaven and hell every now and then, and he said the woman responded with a tremendous shout of glee, and she said, oh boy, am I going to set you straight? And then she handed him the book, and she said, if you'll just read this book, you'll discover that when you die, you go into the ground, and you remain there. And Dr. Ward's response to her is the thing that I thought was so funny when I came across it this week. He said, ma'am, your theology comes from the mother goose rhyme, not from the Word of God, because the Word of God says that to be Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your theology is not based upon Scripture. It is based upon the mother goose rhyme that says, I had a little dog. His name was Rover. And when he died, he died all over. <laughs> now that makes a great mother goose rhyme, but it's terrible theology because it's not at all what the Word of God says. And then he read her verse 2 of John 14, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You see, Jesus is going away, telling his disciples not just to go away, but to do some work. He's a construction manager in eternity. He's preparing, and he's preparing a place. It's a specific place. But then he goes on, and he clarifies it even further. He says, this place is in my Father's house. Not only am I going away to a place, but then he tells them where the place is. He says, the Father's house. And he says this, I love this, and there's lots of room. There's gobs of room. You never see a no vacancy sign in the Father's house. Now, I gave the King James its due a moment ago, but now let me blast it for a moment. Because there is a poor translation at this point, and it's recognized by all 
modern Greek scholars. There's an unfortunate term that's been translated that maybe was okay a couple hundred years ago, but we know a little bit more about the Koine Greek today than we did then. It's the word mansions. In my father's house are many mansions. You've heard sermons preached about the mansions of glory. You've heard songs that have been sung about just over the hilltop. I love those songs. I do. I really love those songs. But they're really bad theology. As a matter of fact, that, that bad translation has resulted for a long time in taking the focus off of what Jesus really was trying to tell the disciples. You know what we've done? We've written sermons and we've sung songs about mansions and glory, and that's not even what Jesus is trying to say. And it takes the full focus off of what really Jesus is trying to say here. The word literally translated means dwelling place or apartment. Those of you that are living in an apartment, you thought, oh, man, I'm going to get out of an apartment in heaven. No, you're not. Jesus is preparing an apartment for you in heaven. They say that by the year 2000, over 50% of everyone who lives in an urban metropolitan area will live in an apartment. Folks in heaven, all of us are going to live in an apartment. Not mansions, but dwelling places. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare, and I'm going to prepare a place, and the place, a dwelling place for you, is in the Father's house. You see, the key that Jesus tried to get here is not the mansion. It's not even the dwelling place, but it's the Father's house. That's what he's trying to emphasize. And we've talked about streets of gold and mansions of gold and mansions of glory when Jesus was all the time trying to say, no, 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 it's the Father's house. That's where I'm going. And that's where you're going to be with me. And that's where I'm preparing a place. It is the Father's house. Heaven is not a place, listen. Heaven is a person. Heaven is not a place. Heaven is a person. It's heaven because the Father is there. And if the Father's not there, it's not heaven, whether it's a mansion or not. The focus is the Father's house. Man, that's glorious when you think about that. I'm going to prepare a place, and in this place, my Father's house, let me tell you, Jesus is saying, there's room for all of you. There are many dwelling places. There are many apartments. You see, when you're with someone you love, it really doesn't matter where you are, does it? I remember when I was in seminary, this is one of those poor seminary student stories, okay? When I was in seminary, I, I completed my first year of seminary single. And you can't go through the second year of seminary single. So everybody gets married during the, you know, summer before their second year in seminary. And, and so I was single after the first year. And, and, and I told Laura that I was a millionaire. And she promised she'd marry me the summer before my second year. So I wouldn't have to start my second year in seminary single. Now, it's really not true. She really gave me her phone number and asked me to call her. But I won't, I won't tell you the rest of that story. But we lived in a place in Forest Park behind a mansion, a million-dollar mansion, four-story mansion. We didn't live in the mansion, though. We lived in the garage apartment behind the mansion that was over the garage that had not been inhabited for 15 years. It used to be the servants' quarters, and they'd long since done away with the servants. And I'd done some painting for this guy, 
and he had that place and I was desperate for a place to live. So ask him about it. And I, we never paid rent the two years we were there. I just did odd jobs for him, a little painting here and his rock plant and his house and that kind of stuff. And, and you get what you pay for, you know, <laughs> that really is the truth. It was above the garage apartment and it was one of those incredibly roach infested, rat infested places. As a matter of fact, one night we came in from late from Comanche, Texas, where I was on the staff at First Baptist Church of Comanche as youth minister. And we drive in late, late Sunday nights after the service was over with and drive down the driveway and open the door and look up the, the stairwell there up to our little uh, apartment up there. And one night we came in and flipped on the light and Laura said, James, there's a cat on the top step. And I said, no, Laura, that's not a cat. That's a rat. And about that time, it's as if we had called the rat. He got confused and he came head first down the stairs and his front feet were on the fourth step before his tail left the first one, I promise you. And he went right between our legs. And he was, we had a pet mouse. We didn't have a table. We, we sat on the floor and ate in front of this little bit black and white TV and the mouse lived behind the TV and he would come out. I'm telling you more than I intended to tell you. But he would come out from behind the TV and he even got to where we could come and we could feed him. He became a pet. And Laura even would feed this little mouse, would put stuff on the floor. It, honestly, she's in the nursery this morning, but you can ask her. It's the honest truth. We didn't have a bed for the first year that we lived in the place. We just had a mattress laid on the floor until Laura got stung by scorpions twice. And the second time was enough. She said, you're going to do something to get this thing off the floor. So you know what I did? I went down the garage and he had a couple of sawhorses. And I took those sawhorses upstairs, nailed a couple of, I honestly did, three or four, two by fours across the top of it, threw the mattress on there, and that was where we stayed until I graduated from seminary. Honestly, the windows would not seal. You'd have a gap under one end of the window like this, and it would be down like this on the other end because the thing had settled so far. One room in the thing, the ceiling was completely destroyed, completely gone. Things were dropping out of the ceiling. I mean, just all kinds of creatures, things that zoologists have never even heard of. But you know what? I honestly don't believe that either one of us has ever been happier than we were in those two years. Because you see, it didn't really matter where we were. What mattered to me was that when I came home from school that afternoon or work that afternoon after I got out of school, there was going to be somebody there and it was my wife. It was Laura, whom I loved dearly. You see, that's what heaven's all about. We don't need mansions in glory. All we need is the Father. And Jesus said, listen guys, your hearts are troubled, your hearts are anxious, but I'm going away. Yes, I am, but I'm going for a purpose. I'm going to make a preparation. I'm going to prepare a place. And that place, Jesus said, is the Father's house. The glory of heaven is not what it looks like. The glory of heaven is who is there. If you grew up in a healthy home, and I know many of you did not, but many of you did. If you grew up in a healthy home under the love and care of a loving father, and you had a healthy relationship with your father, then you can understand the imagery that Jesus is trying to communicate here, can't you? Because your father's house, even to this day, even if he is no longer living, if it was a healthy relationship, the thought, the very words, my father's house, bring all kinds of images to you, do they not? Images of security. Because you knew as a child growing up, if it was a healthy home, that your father was going to protect you. And there was never fear. All kinds of images of freedom from worry about being provided for because you knew your father was going to do whatever it took to provide for your basic needs. Images and feelings and emotions of love and acceptance in a home that even the shyest of children 
could feel that he or she was accepted in that place. You see, that's it. That's what Jesus is saying. It's the Father's house. And man, when you think about the Father, you think of all kinds of things. Protection, security, warmth, acceptance, love. All of those things. Yes, man, I'm going away. But I'm going to prepare a place. And the place, disciples, remember this, the place is the Father's house. And in my Father's house, there are never any vacancies, no vacancy silence. And Bill, let me make the third point because I think this is important. This preparation that Jesus is making is not only a specific place, but it is also, he says, listen, it gets even more specific than that. He says, a place for you. See, it gets personal. It wouldn't have done any good if he hadn't gotten personal. He said, notice, I go to prepare a place for you, specifically for you. Have you ever decorated a room for someone else? Jane has been doing that. That's why she told the painters to paint Alan's wall pink first, because she was... That's not... He's <laughs> getting red. It starts here and it goes up here. That's not what she said. In fact, Alan, she did paint them pink, and Alan walked in and said, no, wrong, time out. Pink's not going to cut it. But in all the process, she's been de decorating and preparing his office to fit Alan, my office to fit me, the secretary's office, hopefully, something that ladies are going to be comfortable in. We're decorating our house right now. Laura's decorating Zachary and Tiffany's rooms. And you walk in from one room to the next, and it's like walking from daylight to darkness. In Tiffany's room, uh, the wallpaper is Dalmatian colors and little frilly, uh, frilly curtains and, you know, frilly bedspreads and all, a perfect place for a little girl, just specifically for her. You walk next door to Zachary's room, though, and it's a, it's a nightmare because he, uh, pigs are comfortable in slop and he's just comfortable there. But he's got baseballs and soccer balls and basketballs on his wallpaper. And, and his bedspread is, again, it's baseballs and soccer balls and racquetballs and all those kinds of things because that's what's comfortable for a little boy. And that's what he loves. That's what he lives for is sports. So you see, the place was decorated specifically for them. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. Listen, I'm going to prepare a place. It's in the Father's house and it's for you, perfectly for you to specifically fit your need as you dwell for eternity with the Father. I heard the story of a guy who was out traveling, long day of traveling, had to have a place to stop. He saw the no vacancy sign out in front of the motel, but he wasn't about to be deterred. He went in and he said, I've been traveling all day, I've got to have a place to stay. And the man said, can't you read? The sign says no vacancy. And the traveler said, I know, but I was hoping that you had just something. It doesn't have to even be a room. It can be a, a closet, just some place that I can lay my head. I don't want to be out in my car tonight. I've been traveling all day long. And, the, and the, the, the clerk said, but sir, I don't have any place. The sign says no vacancy. So in one last ditch effort, the guy says, well, let me ask you a question. If President Bush were to come in here tonight and say that he wanted a room, would you have a room for him? And the Clark kind of stumbled around for a moment, and he said, well, he said, I, I guess if the president of the United States came, I'd have a room for him. And the man responded. He said, well, I know where he is, and he's not coming, so just give me his. <laughs> See, 
So you don't have to piggyback into the Father's house on anybody else's name, on anybody else's reputation. There's a place for you, for you, and for you. When you check into a hotel, you got to provide all kinds of proof of ability to pay, credit card, a voucher, some kind. Listen, in the Father's house, the bill's already been paid. The reservation has already been made. It's not with a credit card. There's no down payment. It's paid in full with the blood of Jesus Christ for you, for you, and for you. If you come in Christ. If you come in Jesus Christ, then the bill has been paid. Listen to what Jesus is saying. For troubled hearts, I'm going away. But let me give you a truth. I'm going to be preparing. I'm going to be working. And what I'm going to be preparing is a place. And that place is in the Father's house. And it's for you. For you. You see, there's the truth of his preparation. He's preparing a place for you. There's a truth of his person. I and the Father are one. You believe in God, then believe in me, and your hearts will not be troubled. And then he closes with the third truth. And I wish I had more time to develop it. There's the truth of his promise. Verse 3. And if. And again, there's an interesting construction there in the Israel language. It's not if, like I might, I might not, but it is it's saying, and I will. If I go and prepare a place for you, what am I going to do? He says, I will come again. And when I come again, Jesus said, I will receive you to myself. And then what? Where I am, there you may be also. What promise is he making? He is promising this. Yes, I'm going away. That troubled you. But let me promise you this. I am coming again. I will come again. The second coming of the Lord Jesus is there to soothe anxious, troubled hearts. Your struggles are temporary. The old song that says, this world is not my home. I'm just to pass and through is true. It is not our home. We are passing through. Listen, folks, that's not escapism. That's truth. It's eternal truth. It's lasting truth because it is founded upon the eternal and the lasting words of the Lord Jesus himself. When General Douglas MacArthur left the Philippines, what did he say? He said, I will return. When he came back, what did he say? I have returned. The scripture says that the Lord Jesus said to the disciples that last night, just before he left, he said, I will return. You know what the scripture says about when he comes back? He's going to say, I will return. But you know how he's going to do it? Paul tells us that he is going to come in clouds. He is going to descend with the voice of the archangel. And the trumpet of God shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And there we shall be with him always. Jesus said, listen, men, your troubles now. But listen, 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 believe me, trust me. I'm going to prepare a place, and that place is for you. And I will come again to receive you to myself. Timeless truths for troubled hearts. The truth of his person. Who is he? He's none other than the eternal God. Can the eternal God lie? So Jesus is saying, listen, you believe in God. Believe in me. Take my words to be truth. The truth about his preparation. Oh, he's preparing a place. It's a wonderful place because he is there. That's what makes it wonderful. And then he says this, I will come again. 
or to say to myself, are you anxious? Are you troubled? Some timeless truths for troubled hearts. But here's the key. These words were delivered to disciples. You know who disciples are? Disciples are those who are in Christ. Disciples are those who have trusted Christ. Disciples are those who have received Christ, as John says, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. These are not words for the unbelieving world. They are not words of comfort for the unbelieving world. They are words of judgment. But for those who are in Christ by faith, they are words of comfort. He's coming again. It may be tomorrow. It may be today. It may be next week. But he is coming again. When he comes, will he find faith in your heart? When he comes, will he find someone who has said to the Lord Jesus, I know you died on the cross for my sins. I know that I ought to give my life in commitment and dedication to you, but I will do it tomorrow. Not today. Will he find you waiting for tomorrow? The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Are you in Christ? If you are, if you come into Christ today by faith, then these are words of comfort for your troubled heart. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you and we praise you for these tremendous truths that you've given us in your word. Father, we thank you. I pray specifically this moment, Lord, for someone in this place who has never committed their heart and life to you in faith and trusted you and just come like a child and said, I want to give my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that you draw them to yourself this morning as only you can. For anxious and troubled hearts this morning, Father, we ask you to bring peace, security, hope, warmth, and your loving embrace. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are there even this moment preparing, interceding, getting ready to come again. We look forward to that day, Lord. And our prayer is even now, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray it in Jesus' name and stand together.